You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Francine, are you a breakfast fan? I'm a huge breakfast fan. What sort? Italian, presumably. So they sweet or salty? Donuts. I'm salty. Oh, uh, really? I'm a salty. I'm actually a full English breakfast full kind of Full English? <laughs> no way. Bacon, sausages. Yep, the ba- whole lot. Not baked beans. Baked beans. Wow. I've just got back from my two weeks. Of, I've basically turned into a croissant after You're eating. so continental, Dave. I am so continental. We're sort of inverted. I, we are. What's I just can't handle on? the English breakfast. It's too much. <laughs> I can, but it's gotten so expensive. Have you seen the index? Yeah, the Bloomberg Breakfast Index. It's pretty It's pretty shocking. 17% more expensive than it was last year. And milk was up 40%. Yeah, and like the breakdown, all the different bits. Milk up, 40, I think, was the highest increase, right? 40%. Mm. And this is inflation really where it hurts, right? The general population. They're not going to f- be able to afford the basics. I'll save because I don't have milk in my tea. I'm Francine Lacroix with David Merritt in the London studio. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories at the heart of the City of London. Now this week, as we inch closer to the election of a new prime minister, we thought it would make sense to do a little fact-checking on the candidate's proposals for the struggling economy. That's right. You know, obviously inflation, a huge topic in everyone's minds. The two candidates don't seem to be able to tell us exactly what they're going to do to tackle it, do they? Yeah, and this is, I guess, a campaign that's as old as times. You promise things and then maybe once you get into power, it doesn't really add up because you see so many more problems that you have to be faced with. And it's a weird campaign, isn't it? Because they're not talking to all of us, most of us in the population. They're talking to this small group. We don't even know exactly how many they are, but Tory party members. And you've got to assume their priorities are probably a little bit different to the public as a whole. So, Dave, to dissect this difference between what he calls campaign economics and the governing kind of economics, I spoke to Panmure Gordon, chief economist Simon French. Simon French, thank you so much for joining us. So we're trying to figure out, first of all, where we are in the UK economy. How bad is it? It's pretty bad. There's no sugar coating it, I'm afraid. We expect uh, a recession starting in the fourth quarter, lasting for two quarters. Now, it has to say the Bank of England see it coming five successive quarters, which would be a... 
contraction on the scale of the global financial crisis. I have to say they have to condition those forecasts on announced government policy. That's an impediment because we expect some more support to come. But whichever version you want, the Pamela Gordon, Simon French version or the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey version, it's pretty bad going into this winter for the UK. The, the Andrew Bailey version, so I was in the press conference, and I have to say, people are looking around saying, I'm a little bit depressed. We've had a very big, very big shock. The rise in energy prices has exacerbated the fall in real incomes. CPI so inflation bad. is now expected to peak at just over 13 GDP growth in the UK has slowed, and the economy is now forecast to enter recession later this year. Were they just being honest, or is this worst-case scenario? I think journalists are certainly smart enough to look at some of the distribution analysis, which isn't necessarily coming across in the monetary policy report, but we've seen from other research organisations the impact on particularly the bottom 20, 30, perhaps even 40% of the UK population, who, by my estimates, will be spending upwards of £1 in every five on their energy, both household energy and petrol for their cars. And that is an extraordinary increase. And I think the level of hardship that that might generate is one of the reasons why you look at those macroeconomic forecasts and you look at the component parts, the distributional impact, and you can get quite depressed quite quickly. And what I often get asked is, why do we not talk about Brexit? Is it Can you no longer talk about Brexit without being accused of being a Remainer? And how much impact does that have on the economy? We should talk about Brexit. There is little doubt, I think, that the UK economy is about 3% smaller today as a result of the decision of the UK to leave the European Union. Is that as bad as was presented in the worst-case no-deal scenario where the Treasury suggested a shrinkage of about 8 to 9% of GDP? No, that hasn't crystallised. But there is clear, obvious impact from additional trade frictions, reduced business investment, and the fact on a trade-weighted basis, sterling is still trading 10 to 15% lower than it was ahead of the referendum. Now, bringing that back to energy an energy market that is priced almost universally in US dollars, clearly a weaker sterling versus US dollars means that there is a bigger inflationary impulse and is part of the reasons you quote those longer and higher inflation figures, the impact of a weak currency. But also labour shortages, which must filter through, of course, how much people are asking for wage increases. Correct. Again, this is one of my frustrations with some of the economic commentary we get in the UK, is that labour shortages are not unique to the UK. You're also seeing labour shortages in other parts of the economy as a legacy of people reappraising their options, early retirees, people with long COVID. But what you do then is in the UK context, you ratchet on top of that a change of the migration regime. What used to be known as third countries, India, Pakistan, the Philippines, Nigeria, and now a much bigger proportion of the total net migration into the UK. Employers in the UK, since the accession of the uh, additional eight EU states in 2004, have built up strong networks between the UK and Poland, UK, Lithuania, part of Eastern Europe, now have to pivot, adjust to a different route of migration. That takes time. That In the parlance of Brexit, what we've done is we've put sand in the cogs of the economy. That sand will eventually work through, the question is how much damage you do in the meantime. It, what are the, the two or three policies that the next Prime Minister can put in place to try and mitigate some of those shocks? If we're talking about economic shocks uh, in terms of household incomes, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, which is the 
uh, specific targeted support for the bottom two, three income cohorts, which isn't necessarily what we've heard about in the campaign, particularly from the Liz Trust campaign, which is about tax cuts, particularly uh, to corporations and national insurance. Well, there's a lot of people who will be of zero beneficiary of those changes. They cost about £30 billion, but actually the benefits will not be those people who will feel the biggest pinch this winter. So I would suggest from a, you know, if you give you, if you want three, one would be to start with specific support for low-income households. Second thing is, I think we have to acknowledge that over the medium to long term, this is only solved by energy independence, energy security. Now, it may well be that the political pressure will become too much for the government not to broaden its windfall tax that is already introduced on North Sea oil and gas. If that is going to happen, what message are you sending to the domestic supply chain about ramping up capacity? Because one of the reasons I've been critical of the energy price cap, which has protected households, yeah. is it disrupts the really important price signals that we get in markets. You know, which is not which is not a hundred percent a price cap like European style, right? This is not how the French do it. They 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 cap the price. This is a, a soft pricing cap. Yes. Which actually beautifully segues into the third and final uh, suggestion, which is what is the optimal, um, if you like, industrial structure for uh, retail energy providers? Because if you talk about what France have done, they've effectively nationalised EDF. Are we going to, out the back of this, maintain a, uh, a retail market where there is a diversified set of providers who... It appears, at least to the consumer, that it's um, heads you win, tails we lose in the event of uncertainty on the future path of energy prices. When wholesale gas prices were, as they were for a decade, 50p a firm, then you know company profit margins, retail energy profit margins, be pretty constant just to playing your margin. But in the event that it's gone 400, 500p, 10x times on the gas price, we're having potentially bailouts, yeah. specific industrial support. Does that suggest the starting structure of UK retail energy was fit for purpose? I think there are more questions than answers on that one at the moment. So you have two candidates that are trying to become prime minister. One is the former chancellor, the other is Liz Truss. They're going around the country. Who are they talking to? Because it, it feels like they're really talking to the 160,000 conservative members that will vote for them. You are absolutely right. And I wrote recently about the difference between campaign economics um, and governing economics. At the moment, we are hearing the economics of campaigning and not campaigning for the votes of 30, 40 million UK electorate. It's the 160 to 200,000 Conservative members. Now, we know the demographic characteristics. They are somewhat older than the average electorate. They are somewhat whiter than the average electorate. They're somewhat richer than the average electorate. Um, that tells us a little bit about their preferences. If you if you look at you know, the sort of demographic profiles and the political preferences of that group, which may be why we're seeing, at least from the Liz Trust side, a lot of channeling of uh, Margaret Thatcher, former UK Prime Minister in the 1980s, who was is very remains very popular, very totemic for that group. The flip side from Rishi Sunak, uh, you are seeing more conversations about or more statements of fiscal discipline. The idea of we're also channeling actually something Margaret Thatcher was keen on, which is sort of good housekeeping of the public finances. But as a result, they've actually generated quite a big gap in their sort of the scale of their fiscal plans, but also the rhetoric they're using. So, so let's focus on tax cuts. Yeah. Liz Truss 
her big thing was, as soon as I get in power, if I get into power, I cut taxes. She can hardly do a U-turn on that. And so what does that mean for the UK economy? We're in an inflationary environment. This is the biggest headache for households. It's the biggest headache for the Bank of England. We're going into tax cuts. I mean, let's not beat about the bush on this, because I think there's been a lot of misinformation spread. Um, Standard economics is that if you increase your budget deficit through either additional spending or uh, uh, cutting taxes, then that will be, at the margin, inflationary. It's not going to be deflationary, it's not going to be neutral, it's going to be inflationary. But it is also true that in the context of inflation that is likely to hit something of the order of 13% in the UK uh, by the end of the year, that will be you not know, quite a rounding error, but the impact of thirty million pounds worth of tax, thirty billion pounds worth of tax cuts, is going to be relatively small in the context of events that are going on three thousand miles to the east of us that are impacting wholesale energy prices. So it is one of magnitudes, but there is no doubt that you are adding fuel, albeit a limited amount of fuel, to what is already an inflationary fire. But but that makes the life of the rich easier but not necessarily the ones that are struggling the most with the cost of living. Well, that certainly, if you're looking at the type of tax cuts that are being proposed by the Trust campaign, let's be quite specific here. She is suggesting reversing the increase in national insurance contributions that came in earlier in the year that was quite a progressive, you can argue whether it was a good or a bad thing, Mm -hmm. but unambiguously, more affluent households paid more than poorer households. And therefore, if you reverse them, you do go on the reverse journey. And at this point, given the distributional impact of uh, higher energy prices, do I think that is an appropriate tax cut? Um, Personally, I think it is poorly targeted. If you've got a finite amount of public resources you want to devote to supporting households through this period, I'm not sure I'd pick that national insurance increase as the one to reverse. Liz Truss gets in. What's her biggest challenge economically? in the next 48 hours. How is she going to support UK household incomes through this winter? How targeted is that going to be? And probably the biggest decision is she's got two broad options. She can either give money directly to households, you know, support specific cohorts, and indeed not support specific cohorts. The, to govern is to choose. She has to make those choices in the first 48 hours. Um, But then if she doesn't want to support household incomes, will she just cap the energy tariffs at a level below what the futures market is pointing to, effectively tear up the formula? If she were to do that, most UK retail energy companies in the UK would immediately become insolvent. And therefore, effectively, you're talking about nationalisation. So two very, very different paths with very, very different implications. She's got to decide which of those two broad paths she has to pick early on. And and do you think she'd be prime minister to the people or prime minister to the Conservatives? The problem, if you like, in answering that question about Liz Truss is Liz Truss and her opponents have used this. And I'm not I'm not jumping on a political bandwagon. It's just a statement of fact. She was a Republican. She's now a monarchist. She was a Lib Dem. She's now a Conservative. She was a Remainer. She's now a Lever. Therefore, it's quite difficult, actually, to answer your question. I'm not going to sort of, if you like... um, criticise her for that. I actually think it's a virtue. If you experience different stuff in life, you change your views. That's 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 a good thing. I don't like uh, ideologues who don't change their view regardless of the evidence. But in terms of being able to answer your question, 
it's quite difficult to know how pragmatic she will be when the electorate change from the aforementioned 160, 200,000 to trying to win a re-election in late 2024. The problem is, whichever choice she picks, she'll have to upset someone. By promising, if you like, campaign economics, you want to be all things to all people, which, let's be honest, the current UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, made a, has made a career of doing, eventually you'll disappoint someone because you have to make those decisions in government. When you campaign, you don't have to make them. When you are in government, you have to choose. And will she disappoint, if you like, her base, who swept her to power by promising her them stuff on Brexit, on tax cuts, which the realities of office may, may make it very difficult to achieve? I mean, I guess that the economists and the city know Rishi Sunak better because he was in charge of finances for this country. Is that what he'll be as prime minister? Will he put the same policies in place? He's been quite public, and it's no secret, I think, to any of your listeners, that him and the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, did not see eye to eye uh, on the economic path. And therefore, this wasn't, if you like, a pure economic strategy of Rishi Sunak. This was always, as it was in the latter days of uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, it was a compromise which avoided the two hit uh, punching each other. I don't think it ever came to that, but at least uh, metaphorically punching each other. And therefore, we don't necessarily get a read from his period in office as a chancellor how he would be as prime minister. Having said that, I do think his fiscal conservatism, small c, is genuine. He does worry about uh, debt. He does worry about sustainable finances. He is quite, from everyone who's worked with him, uh, people I have a lot of respect for say he's very, very diligent. I think it is that diligence and that work ethic that is, the, from my perspective, as trying to understand his economics, the most appealing, because it's likely, therefore, to be uh, consistent and logical. Simon, is it up to the Prime Minister, really, to set the economic targets or the economic trend or it will be, you know, at the end of the day, the Chancellor and their advisors. Well, I think you're alluding to a very interesting point, which is who will be the Chancellor under either Liz Truss or, or Rishi Sunak? Um, and I think the smart money is on current Energy Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng being the uh, Chancellor. For Truss. For Truss. And what we know about Kwasi Kwarteng is he co-authored with Dominic Raab and Liz Truss Britannia Unchained, which had a very different vision for the UK economy than the current UK economy. Will that crystallise in the stuff that's coming out of the Treasury? Or will he be selected because Liz Truss thinks as Prime Minister she wants a Treasury who are uh, lockstep with what she's uh, setting out? There's a very different challenge, actually, for Rishi Sunak, which was a challenge that Alistair Darling faced when he took over as Chancellor from Gordon Brown, as if the former Chancellor, who knows the Treasury inside out, then moves into number 10. You, you can't get much past someone who might want to sort of continue to take quite a detailed look at the economic brief. I think the reality is, whoever they surround themselves by they will be impacted by events that even sat here now with the, if you like, the foresight of what is to come in terms of the economic slowdown, the economic pressures, it will be shaped by events that none of us can predict. And what you therefore look for is someone who has the intellectual rigour, consistency to appraise those options in real time and make bold, you know, evidence-led decisions. And that's what you would want to see from the advisory base rather than necessarily a makeup that has preconceived ideological attachments. D does the city and do bankers have a favourite candidate? Oh, to the degree that I can ever speak for the city, that anybody can ever speak for the city, I, I think um, 
There is probably a slight preference for Rishi Sunak, but I wouldn't say it was overwhelming. What are you doing for lunch? Last time the podcast crashed a working lunch you had at Sweetings. Do you remember that? You're like our, our first guest presenter at Sweetings. I do. And it was a, it was a brilliant way to end that lunch, uh, to, to come and chat to you guys. Um, you ran away. I didn't run away. I tried to run away. But you then, you know, it's, I cornered you. Um, no, a, 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 client, a client lunch, which um, uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to because there is so much for UK folks, this is a this is a small mid cap UK investor who is looking at the UK situation, and we've talked about this for years, Francine. Which is since the Brexit vote, UK assets have been at a considerable discount. Global investors have taken a dim view of politics and economics in the UK, and this individual in question who I'm lunching with today uh, has a conviction that there's still, and it's a conviction I share, the UK still has some great companies, some great uh, intellectual property. They're at attractive valuations, but actually, and if this can encompass all we've just chatted about in the last you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, it is, if that can just be put together with some stable governance, gosh, I, I, one thing I would agree with the trust campaign is the UK's best years could still be in front of her. So the business lunch is back. It is. With a vengeance, even in August. Definitely. Simon French, thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week with a look at the London housing market for the ultra-rich. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, Francie Lacqua. With a small appearance by me, David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Sadi and special thanks to Simon French. 